Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Welcome to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Do you have a mate that doesn't seem great? Maybe their team is up, but they're still down. A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You Okay? Welcome to the Conversations That Could. I'm Dermot Brereton. This is a show where we talk to people from across the sporting landscape and discuss issues surrounding mental health, the struggles, the successes, and ways in which we can all support each other through the challenges that life presents. Our guest tonight is regarded as the most successful female surfer in history. Her dedication to success saw her as the only surfer, male or female, to claim six consecutive world titles between 1998 and 2003. She went on to win a seventh world title in 2006 before retiring. She's now the chairperson at Surfing Australia and the owner, director, facilitator at the Awake Academy. And just a heads up, listeners, we're possibly going to head into some challenging emotional territory with Lane. So if tonight's discussion brings up tough feelings or experiences and you need some extra support, we urge you to reach out to someone you trust or contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. It's my pleasure now to welcome Lane Beachley, AO, to the conversations that could. Lane, thank you for speaking to us. So good to see you and speak to you too, Derm. I just flashed on a moment there where you're introducing yourself and me and I was thinking, has anyone done an anchor man on you and put a question mark at the end of your name? <laughs> no. Because, <laughs> you know, you're reading the fact that you're Dermot McBride and you're like, <laughs> I'm Dermot <laughs> It does seem funny doing that occasionally, yes. But I, I know if I, for one moment, deviate from what I can do. Yeah, and my, my coach used to say, if you can't think... Think and chew, spit out your chewy. Just keep it simple. <laughs> yep, keep it simple. So where do we find yeah, you? Where do you find me? On the northern beaches of Sydney. Yeah, and you're still surfing? I'm still surfing every day. Surfing champions, I know that like footballers, when we have a day off, we'll go surfing or we'll play golf or we'll go for a walk or we'll do some different recreation. But surfers are different, aren't they? If it's going, if it's pumping, if it's happening out there, on their day off, surfers go surfing. Yeah, and if it's pumping, you'll see us running to the beach like our lives depend on it too, by the way. It's because anything could happen out there. The wind could turn on, the swell could drop, it could get more crowded, the tide might change it. So there's so many variables that we're constantly watching and analysing the forecast to make sure that we get the best time in the water. Now, I have had the privilege. I saw you surfing, I think it's uh, steps down at uh, near... 
near um, Bell's Beach. Near boobs. Yeah, Boobs. <laughs> well, okay, I will say that. That's the name of it. Um, yeah, near <laughs> Bird right. Rock. Yeah, I saw you coming out with Ken. Uh, you yeah. Were that that Gosh, was that was a yeah, long time, long ago. time ago. Yeah, and it was cold, Melbourne cold. Yes. Yeah. Well, you come to expect that when we were competing down there at Bells. You you come to expect four seasons in one day. So there'd be times I'm paddling out in a spring suit and then times I'm paddling out in a 4-3 steamer and wishing I had a hood and the booties and the gloves. And, yeah, it's cold. It's really cold. But um, but that's part of the beauty of Bells Beach. It's part of the, the raw ruggedness and the appeal of surfing down there in Victoria. No doubt about it. We're going to talk about the mentality of the sport, some of the hurdles and, and the uh, trials and the tribulations and the and the absolute successes and, if you permit us, some of the lows that your career and life has had to deal with. But first of, of all, uh, can I ask a little bit, we get a little bit more of a feel about Main Beach. Is like, are you good at any other sport? Yes, I am. Just ask me. You just did. I'm good at tennis. I am not, look, I can tell you the one sport I'm not good at and I do not enjoy playing and that's golf. I know a lot of surfers are very good at golf. It's probably that rotation that they're really good at. But uh, no, I just can't play it. Can't be bothered to play it. But tennis is my go-to sport outside of surfing. Uh, I'd imagine you're fairly agile around the court. Are you a big server? I am a big server. Yes, I'm not a servant volleyer. Now, what? Running it out from having the the muscle groups and that power that you you guys are so capable of generating is that. What gives you so much strength when you are playing a sport like tennis? I was attracted to tennis before I was attracted to surfing. I mean, I loved, I still love both sports and I love playing both sports, but surfing was the one sport I just daydreamed about all the time. But it comes to tennis, it's a real technical game. And I learned the old school way that I'm still working out of my game. And I feel it's it's as much mental as it is physical. But then you'd know that from playing it at the high performance level of footy, once you get to a certain physical degree or physical capability within your sport, it then comes down to what happen- what's happening between your ears and that really determines how well you play. Can I ask you about that? And, and this is almost like a lesson for me. I'm almost deviating from the script here asking – Ooh, for a, for a bloke, how non-anchorman. <laughs> for a bloke that's like six two, and a hundred yep. kilos, and most of it's in torso, long skinny legs, and yet when I've had the opportunity to actually have a surf with Potsy and and or Rocky, they're little blokes from the waist down. They are powerhouses through the trunk, and there's not all that much. It's completely the wrong build, isn't it? It's power. For, the, for these blokes who make it to the top, isn't it? Yeah, it's all about that core strength and that core stability. And that was definitely one of Oki's distinct competitive advantages because he's pretty much all torso and no legs. So he's got like this super strong trunk, super solid quads and hips. Same with Tom Carroll, right? They're just these little frothing mangroms who um, have a real low centre of gravity, have incredible torque and rotation through their centre, incredibly strong abs and, uh, yeah, that contraction, extension and rotation is what gives them the advantage to be able to rotate through their turns and then power through their turns to go into the next one. So there's there's re- there's no disjointedness between their turns. It's just power and flow. You mentioned golf before and I like watching the, the, the ladies' golf, the female golfers, yeah. because it's not all about power. There's a fair bit of grace. Yeah. There's a fair bit of timing. And similarly, in watching female surfing 
it's there's a fair bit of grace. Sure enough, there's some there's some of the girls are getting really powerful and they really work out hard. Yourself included, uh, halfway through your career. But it's more about the grace of the sport, isn't it? And and there's something that even blokes like me who who rank one out of ten as a surfer look at, and we see the grace of that of of surfing in the female form. I feel that women's sport right now has a distinct advantage in being a lot more relatable, especially when it comes to surfing. I mean, the, the top girls are all about power and they also bring an element of grace and style and beauty and flow and femininity. So it's a lot more relatable for the average surfer. Whereas you look at the guys like Italo and Gabe Medina, they're just all about above the waves. Yeah, and they're most power, aren't they? We can't relate to that. You know, I, I can't get above the wave unless I'm flying off the back of it. So it's it's so fun to – and like you talk about the female golfers, it's very similar in, this, in that way because, I mean, they allow the club to do the work, much like female surfers allow the ocean and their boards to do a lot of the work, but they've still got to have that element of control and technicality around how they swing the club or how they manoeuvre their boards and have an understanding of that. But, yeah, I love watching women's sport because they – it's almost like they tap into the environment. They tap into allowing all the forces around them to nurture them and therefore propel them forward as opposed to either over-surfing or overcompensating or overpowering the environment that they're in. And therefore you, you, you lose that attachment to that and therefore you lose your flow from it. So I feel that that's why women's surfing and women's golf and women's tennis too are, are such an enjoyable sports to watch. You mentioned environment. Where would you say was your first home break? Manly Beach, of course. Most appropriately named beach in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I've surfed at Manly Beach when I was playing up there for the the Sydney Swans. Uh, We used to Mm. go out at Manly a, a fair bit. It's a pretty male dominated area. It's it's a very masculine. I mean, if there's a break set up in the anywhere on the beach, like a few breaks working. To get out there and get into the lineup, it's a pretty masculine dominated area and world. And I would imagine for a young Lane Beachley, you would seriously have to earn your stripes paddling out there as a young, young teenager. Yeah, growing up in Manly taught me a lot. You know, it definitely made me fight for what I believed in. It taught me how to remain humble and grounded. You know, still to this day, uh, Manly, you'll still see the same faces in the same places. You know, it's a very consistent environment to grow up in. And it was a very hostile, threatening and challenging world to be a part of, the surf world, back in the 70s. So I had to fight a lot. Um, But... I also learned the most valuable lesson that I still carry with me today, and that's the importance of finding allies, allies everywhere I go. And at that point, it was the only allies I could find in the water were men. So it's a matter of finding the the surfers who are most willing to share their knowledge and their wisdom with me and also the surfers who are most uh, supportive and encouraging of me because there were plenty of guys out there who I refer to as my dream thieves, you know, the guys that suck the life out of you, (laughs) tell you that you're never going to make it, hundreds of them. But there was a couple out there who believed in me, sometimes more than I believed in myself, and I tended to gravitate towards those guys and they became my allies, especially in moments where I felt like I was being intimidated. Did you find out in those waves as a young teenager that if you surfed a wave and and you knew you nailed it and you knew some of those sceptics were paddling back out through the channel and they watched you, what did it do to your psyche? Not much, really. No, you didn't care (laughs) about them? Didn't care? No. 
No, I I more enjoyed the the encouragement. You know, the occasional whoo. You know, the occasional hoot. Or, a hoot from you know, the that, channel. That, yeah, yeah, a hoot from the channel. I remember the first hoot I ever got from Barton Lynch and actually someone paddled out and said, Barton just hooted you. I'm like, yes, this is awesome. Um, and, you know, as a teenager. So I, I often just listened for the positive and ignored the negative. It tends to benefit me in ways that I never imagined. Well, take us back to some of the struggles. Are you comfortable talking about some of the yeah, the of harder aspects of of the life of Lane Beachley when she was becoming sure. self-aware. Yeah, sure. Okay, so you were eight years of age when you found out you were adopted? Oh, yeah, you want to go all the way back. Okay, well, let me take you to when I was six when okay. my mum died and um, and how traumatic that was. But very fortunate that I was quite young because I had the advantage of not really understanding that whole concept of forever and losing someone so impactful. And, of course, it was a distressing, traumatic period. Uh, and I remember having nightmares for, for a couple of years following that. But what I feel was definitely even more traumatic was being told I was adopted. And if we understand the the, the way that our brain waves work, when we're young, we're, we've got this real narcissistic state. So everything's happening um, and we're just working out how it pertains to us. And it's not until we hit about five or six that our brain waves change of we can actually start to analyse, criticise and judge. And so... When my dad told me that I was adopted, despite being so loving and nurturing and compassionate in the way in which he told me, the way I chose to hear it was through a judgment and critical lens. So he was he was saying, I love you, you're my baby girl. And I was hearing I've been abandoned, I've been rejected, my own mother didn't want me, I don't care what you're saying to me because as far as I'm now choosing to believe that I never belonged here, I'm not a blood relation, you never really wanted me, I don't have anyone that loves me. And that was a story that I subscribed to for a very long time. And and it seems to be a common denominator through adoptees is that we have this fear of rejection, this fear of abandonment, and that we believe we've been abandoned as opposed to being accepted. What What's a long time? You said you, you failed to grasp that or, or accept it and, and deal with it the, the appropriate way. What's a long time? Well, I, I was eight years of age when Dad told me and I had a realisation that it was driving me when I was – 25 and that's when I did my first what they were called referred to as a rebirthing process where I went into this cyclical breathing process where it helps me transfer and transmute emotions that are stored in my body and when I and that really helped me uncover the fact that I had this massive fear of rejection but knowing it and then detaching from it are two very different things so I knew it but I still allowed it to drive me and I didn't allow myself to detach from it until after I won my sixth consecutive world title. So I believe I was about 32 <laughs> when I won my sixth one. And I remember what, so one of my friends asking me, what's driving you? Is it because you're adopted? And that resonated with my heart. I went, yes, that's exactly what's driving me. So, and it was those, all these life lessons and all these reflection points where I can go back and go, wow. I did that because of that story that I was subscribing to. And that's essentially what's inspired me to create my online academy, my Awake Academy, is to teach people that there's not just one way to succeed. There's a variety of different ways if you're willing to open yourself up to exploring that. And I don't encourage people to go about success the way in which I did it. And as you know, when you become successful, a lot of people want to know how, what's the formula, what's the process I need to follow to achieve it. But my life lessons involve 
a lot of reflection and analysis to the point where I look back on my career and go, yeah, I've won seven world titles. And yes, I'm the only athlete in the world to win six of them in a row, but five of them are won in a state of fear and only two of them are won in a state of love. And the, the difference between love and fear is literally the process that you follow. Our guest today is world surfing champion, Lane Beachley. I'm Dermot Brereton. This is The Conversations That Could for Are You OK? Dare Ice Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? More in a moment. Welcome back to The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask Are You OK? Welcome back. My guest tonight is seven times world surfing champion, Lane Beachley. So some people don't have the opportunity to turn a motivation which is born out of a negative mindset and turn it into a success. You have. Do you feel you're fortunate in this situation? Yes, I do. And I'm glad you use the word fortunate and not lucky because I work too hard to be lucky. And that the word really doesn't exist in my vocabulary, but I feel very fortunate because I chose to do something with it. I chose to channel it into something that was bigger than me. And that was, you know, of course, conquering the world, but also changing the landscape of women surfing for future generations to follow. And you most certainly, certainly did that. So you then go on to, uh, if we can sort of move forward, but backtrace a little, <laughs> back to uh, age 15, you start surfing competitively uh, and you win against men. And this is, once again, going back to the beginning of what the drive was. How did the world unfold for you from the, those moments in time where you were able to beat men on what was their home turf? Well, that's all I knew. I only knew that you surfed against men because <laughs> I didn't compete against women at all when right. I was free surfing. And the first few events I competed in were all against guys anyway, especially the board riders club. So it was very familiar. It was quite comfortable. It wasn't it wasn't anything that I knew to be different. The, the first few events I competed in as a 14-year-old, I came dead last. And then when I surfed in the as a 15-year-old in the regional scholastic titles, that was the first time I really had a chance to surf against other girls. And it was a it was a new experience because it felt like a more equal playing field. And I also felt like I had the distinct advantage coming from having to surf against guys all the time, which, of course, they were threatened to lose against a girl, and they still are these days. I mean, gosh, when I compete against guys, even if it's in the local board riders clubs, the, they get so – intimidated by the fact they could potentially lose to a girl, irrespective of how many world titles I have. It's quite humorous. It's quite funny to see them freak out. That, that's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, people cannot sort out that they are a weekend warrior and they might yeah. love their surfing and yet they're surfing in the same waves against a world champion. It's not a bunny. It's not some, it's not some <laughs> blow-in. It's a world champion and they're still threatened by it. It's quite entertaining. I, I do. I find a lot of joy in it, actually. <laughs> I like to, uh, you know, give them a dose of humility, and I, I, I feel like it's a win-win for me because if I win, yeah, it, it makes them feel a little less uh, confident. Which you know, I don't like to batter people's confidence, so it's more about just. Um, giving them a dose of humility. So if I beat them, great, and if I don't, then great, because um, I've still had the opportunity to to. You know, make them feel uncomfortable a little bit. <laughs> but I surfed against. You would have heard a guy about a guy called Johnny Boy 
Games. Oh, yeah, yeah, Johnny the, with Hawaiian. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I surfed against him out at Sunset Beach many, many years ago when I was living there with Ken Bradshaw. And um, he literally gra- – he paddled up to me at the start of the heat before it started and growled in my face to intimidate me. Yeah. And I had to do my utmost best to not laugh in his face because I thought, oh, look, you're a scared little boy. You're going you're gonna to lose to a little girl. Come on. It's going to be okay. I didn't say any of those things. I just thought it. He had a fearsome rep, not that he could do anything. Well, he had a reputation for being quite disrespectful, irrespective of gender. So, yeah, he hit, he smashed Jodie Cooper in the face and, he, you know, he, he liked to hit people. He liked to flex his muscle and intimidate people. So for him to, to paddle up and growl at me, I'm, I'm sure he knew not to hit me because Ken Bradshaw would have retaliated. Yeah. But the thing was is that he was so intimidated to surf against me that he he felt the need to come up and, and physically intimidate me, which, of course, it, it worked in the reverse. So it was a four-man heat. He and I came first and second, so we both made it through the heat. And then he paddled up and actually attempted to apologise, but in a way where he didn't say sorry for doing that. He said, look, the boys just told me if I lose to a girl, it's worse than losing to Kelly Slater at Pipeline. So I wasn't allowed to come home. I was like, dude, this is 2000 and like one. Why? <laughs> what on earth are you carrying on with this for? But I've seen um, I've seen a lot worse and uh, I'm happy to say I've also seen a dramatic improvement in the acceptance and uh, response to women in the water these days. Oh, yeah. The amount of times I've been out there, Lane, and 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 have seen girls out there paddling and and just by the way they surf, I look at them and say, gee, I wish that was my partner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, gee, share. I wish I could surf that well. Yeah, exactly right, with that grace. Now, can yep. you you correct me here if I if I get, get this wrong. You, I believe you had... Uh, a self-awareness stage where you realised that you were uh, prone to or susceptible to uh, moments of depression. Am I am I correct in phrasing it that way? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And it, and I I really wish it was just a phase. <laughs> Okay. Um, but the thing is, once you become susceptible to something, you remain susceptible to it. And it was a result of enduring my second bout of chronic fatigue syndrome. It was in the late 90s, so it was referred to as yuppies disease. I had very little compassion or empathy wrapped around it. Yeah. And I had little empathy or compassion wrapped around myself. So I ended up um, beating myself up and and running myself down into the ground and then continuing to persevere through that because I saw it as an obstacle I had to overcome uh, and ended up with, yeah, chronic fatigue syndrome that debilit- was very debilitating and ended up with several bouts of depression and suicidal tendencies, which was quite disconcerting. Can I just ask you then, why yeah. did you why did you do that to yourself? Why did you beat yourself up for having chronic fatigue? Why did you allow that to happen to yourself? Well, first thing is I didn't I didn't take ownership of it. So I didn't see when you say, why did you allow that? I didn't didn't think I was in control. I didn't think I was allowing myself to do anything. I just, I, I didn't think I had a choice. I just had to persevere. I had to push through it. I was on this mission to achieve success. And I didn't realize that everything that I was doing was actually contributing to it. Didn't realize that my diet, my training, my lack of sleep, my work ethic, um, my lack of self-compassion, my lack of empathy, I didn't realize that everything that I was choosing was actually contributing to my emotional, mental and physical state. So allowing it didn't seem like the right phrase to put around it. I felt I was a victim. I was a victim of circumstance. I was a victim of my choices and I was a lay blamer. 
and to avoid being criticised and judged, I would judge myself and criticise myself to beat others to the punch. So that 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 is a common occurrence in high performing athletes, you know, like those like yourself who get to seriously get to the top of the tree. There, there's there's a a non acceptance of things that don't happen to their liking. They're, they're so driven. People like you would be so, such a driven person that it has to yeah. be your way. So when it goes wrong, does it go horribly wrong? Yeah, absolutely. And when it goes wrong, it's it goes it spirals into it goes from guilt to shame. So the difference is guilt is, oh, I can't believe that happened to shame is I can't believe I am that. So if say for say for example when I lost in a contest, I can't believe I lost to I can't believe I'm such a loser. And that's the difference between the guilt and the shame scenario. So I just became very self-defeating. I was the queen of self-sabotage. I gave myself an extremely hard time. And by doing that, I thought that's what it took to achieve success. I thought I had to be hard and I had to be hard on myself and I had to be hard on everyone around me. And all that was doing, and all, well, first the derivative of that was fear because I had this fear of rejection. So I was unconsciously behaving in a way that gave people reason to reject me or I was rejecting people first to protect myself. So that was all driven through fear. And then this desire to succeed and achieve wasn't the golden egg I was striving for. Literally all I wanted to do and all I wanted to feel was worthy of love. And that was the story that I subscribed to back when I was eight years of age saying, hang on, I'm not even worthy of my own mother's love. Whose love am I worthy of? How do I define being worthy of love? I know if I become the best in the world at something, then, only then will I be worthy of love. So, So it's almost like your inner child was looking for acceptance through deeds. 100%. Does the travel world of the professional surfer. I mean, I would imagine, I mean, it, it seems for us bunnies who, as I say, the weekend warrior who gets out there mm. and paddles and flops around, we look at it and say, oh, imagine flown around the world, get to go to these beaches, you surf for a living, you get sponsorship. How different is reality to that? Not much. No. <laughs> Good on you. I want to call you something starting with B right now and ends in itch. But <laughs> look, it's a pretty awesome lifestyle getting and look, it's a lot different today than it was back when I was competing okay. because for 19 years on tour, I flew economy everywhere. I um, majority of my prize money went back into supporting my next event. Um, I wasn't I wasn't well remunerated throughout my career until the latter half of my career when I was starting to win world titles. Yeah. Uh, and also I earned half a million dollars in prize money in 19 years, whereas these days Steph Gilmore or Tyler Wright or Sally Fitzgibbons, they can earn half a million dollars in one year on tour. So it's a completely different playing field. But then also there's an enormous – a lot more – pressure and expectation and intrusion and you've got social media and you know all the other responsibilities that come along with being a professional athlete so if it, it look if it was just a matter of just 
showing up and getting paid to go surfing, I'd still be on tour, but it's not that easy. So there's a there's a lot that goes with it. But however, saying that, look, it's a lot better than being a briefcase bandit, right? It's a lot better than having to commute to work every day and sit in an office in a job that you may not enjoy. Yes, I got paid to go surfing for a living, to wear a bikini, which is my uniform, and sunscreen, which is my makeup, and the ocean was my office every day. And of course, there were times when it got a little tedious, tedious and tiresome, but uh, that was irregular. That was a very irregular occurrence. So it was a it was a beautiful, enviable lifestyle. And fortunately, I still have a strong connection to it, where I am still able to go and surf and in, immerse myself in that world every single day. Yeah, I'm even more jealous now after that answer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, go on. What was it like to kick the ball for a living? Uh, well, it was great fun while you were kicking them, and you had the ball. But when you were going for it and somebody's punching you in the back of the head, running stops down the back of your knees and jumping into your back and kneeing in the kidneys, that's not so much fun. No, that doesn't sound like fun. What was the funnest part? It's a great question. It it is enjoyable. It's a great lifestyle, but it really does mess your body up by the end. And you do it all for one moment. You do it all in in the aim, the direction for one moment. Once, I mean, every kid plays footy because he loves to kick the footy. He loves to be with his mates. But once it turns into a profession, you're, you're doing all that pre-season, 48 weeks a year for one moment, and that's the final siren of the grand final, and you just hope you're in front. That's what that's the moment yeah. you're doing it for. So it's Wow. A, Sounds exhausting. It was. <laughs> I prefer interviewing uh, champions of the world and, and such as yourself. Yeah, it's just interesting that when you talk about you're doing it all for that one moment, and that to me was the best example of what those five out of those seven world titles were wrapped up in, was wrapped up in outcome. And when it's wrapped up in outcome, it can be very fear-based And when I fell in love with the experience, when I fell in love with the process, when I fell in love with winning and losing, because when you're not winning, you're learning. But if you're so focused on the outcome, you stop learning and you just start losing. So I learned how to detach from all of those external circumstances and those external drivers. And I actually became more intrinsically aligned with why I was there in the first place. I wasn't there to win or lose. I was actually there to really enjoy it. And that's why the first year and the last year were my two most favourite world titles. But the last year in particular, the last world title I won because I really thoroughly enjoyed the whole experience. So I didn't allow losing to define me. I didn't allow winning to define me. I would I would celebrate losing for the first time in my life. It was like, ta-da, okay, I learned something valuable from that. Let's keep going. So it was a, a really uh it was centered and anchored in joy, ease, grace and gratitude. And it made it a lot more fun. And therefore I wasn't so caught up in the final siren. I sold the both sports short, probably, and yourself insofar as there is the beautiful moments as well. I mean, the, the, the moments oh, of cool. majesty that, that the sport present that I know I might have been fortunate enough to be a part of, just beautiful actions of, of the sport. I mean, there would be certain moves you've committed on, on various waves where you remember that move, and that's the beauty of that sport. Yeah, it's very uh, visceral. In its experience, because yeah, attempting to match a force that's so powerful in Mother Nature, 
and then attempting to paint your artistry on a forever moving canvas is extremely challenging and learning how to adapt to the changing environment every moment is uh, is what gives us that competitive advantage during challenges and obstacles because we are adaptable in that in that environment so yeah I'm very grateful that um, surfing has not only given me a life and at times it's saved my life because as you mentioned I've been through my states of despair and depression and darkness and the ocean is still my place of solace it's where I resort to when I'm feeling down and process my hurts and it's also where I go to celebrate my success and have fun so yeah, I just I I wish that everyone in this world had a place like I do when it comes to the ocean where I can feel safe and free and held and nurtured and confident and comfortable because uh finding that state of freedom in this current world is uh, extremely challenging. Yeah. I'm Dermot Brown. Our guest today is world surfing champion Lane Beachley and remember when your mate bottles it up a dare fix won't fix it. But a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? More with Lane in a moment. Welcome back to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. When your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it. But a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the Conversations That Could for Are You Okay? I'm Dermot Brereton and my special guest tonight is Lane Beachley, seven times, seven times world surfing champion. Lane, when I am out there surfing really poorly, I get this feeling when <laughs> Does I- Does that happen daily? Well, that, that's whenever I'm surfing. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm out there, I'm surfing good, bad, poorly, indifferent, more of yep. the latter. I get this feeling- where I'm on the board and I can look back at the coastline and I have this feeling that that's where all my problems are. None of the problems have followed me out here into the water. Is there anything in that that people have ever expressed that type of feeling to you that that's what the ocean means to them? Mm, absolutely. And, and irrespective of, of what vessel you choose to float on, everyone I feel can experience something very similar to that. I mean, I get a true sense of freedom when I'm on a boat in the middle of the ocean and I can't see land anywhere. That to me is just the utmost, that's the epitome of freedom. And yes, sometimes I do have people who I can sense are struggling and I'll paddle up to them and ask them, are you doing okay? Is everything all right? They're like, yeah, just out here to process whatever's going on in my life. And then they'll turn around and catch a wave and, It'll all be washed away within ten seconds. Um, so there's times when it live when it stays on the shore, and there's times when it comes into the water with me or with us, and um, and that is entirely up to us to choose. And you know, there's times when I scream underwater. There's times when I cry. There's times when I'm elated and happy. It's just that's why I refer to that sense of freedom and nurturing that the ocean provides on a daily basis. Earlier, you mentioned, but that wasn't the golden egg that I was searching for. Mm. What is the golden egg for you, Lane? My golden egg is actually centred in how I want to feel. So if you've read any of Simon Sinek's work, he wrote a book called Start With Why, and when we get to the bottom of our why, when we understand why we do what we do on a day-to-day basis, that helps us overcome any setback or challenge or obstacle. 
And I wasn't aware of my why, as I referred to earlier, that I was driven out of fear. Um, today, my why is awakening others awakens me because it's a mutually beneficial transaction. I get to help people through their stuff and it helps wake me up even more. But my why for surfing is just that pure sense of connection, um, that sense of freedom, the ability to rinse my mind, body and soul. And um, and it's also very nurturing. It's a very centering exercise. It gives me balance and it's physically demanding, emotionally connecting. It's mentally stimulating. It just has so many things to offer for me on a, a holistic basis. So that's my why for surfing. I've read your ABCD of negativity and and oh, how yes. how you can forewarn yourself with these mm. with these signs would you would you be kind enough to share them with us yeah of course so the abcds i i've taken from a thought leader a guy called john d martini who has taught me a lot throughout my life and i've read a lot of his books but anger blame criticism and despair are signs that you've got into states of depression. Um, if you're angry at yourself or angry at the world, if you're blaming others or blaming yourself, if you're critical and judgmental, and then if you're desperate to change things, then that's an indication that things aren't going right and things aren't going well. Unfortunately, we tend to wait until we get to that desperation stage before we actually do anything about it. So the message that I like to share here is that dissatisfaction is the precursor to change and you won't change or do anything different until you become dissatisfied with the status quo. Mm. And if you want to know what you're dissatisfied with, then just have a look at what makes you really angry. <laughs> Start there because uh, that's a sign that you're dissatisfied and anger is the first sign to spiralling into states of negativity. I'm Dermot Burden. Time for a break. Our guest today is world surfing champion Lane Beachley. And remember, when your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the conversations that could with Dermot Burden. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the conversations that could for Are You Okay? I'm Dermot Brereton, and our guest is former world champion surfer Lane Beachley, the only person in the world to win six world championships in a row. So, Lane, if we can actually talk about something that's very delicate and there would mm. be people who are touched in the same way, you were conceived through date rape to your mother. How did that and how does that affect you if it does still affect you? Well, I can honestly say now it doesn't affect me, but it did originally at the time. So my mother was uh, 17 years of age when she gave birth to me and I was adopted out from birth. So she never had a chance to hold me or her parents suggested that she wasn't old enough or mature enough to have a child. Yeah. And they were of a strict Catholic family. So it was um, not ideal for a young, unwedded Scottish girl to come home with a baby. I was fortuitously adopted into a beach-loving family with the last name Beachley and became a pro-surfer. So uh, I'm very grateful that my mother was pushed into that 
unfortunate situation where she had to give me up. But we were able to reconnect when I was 27 years of age. And that's, um, it was the first phone call that she advised me that I was conceived through date rape. It was almost like she was trying to make up for 27 years of my life. And it was all very confronting. It was a little bit too much. I do remember hanging up the phone on on her going, I don't want to speak to you. Um, This is all too much for me to take. And then when I met her, Several months later, uh, it was literally was like looking in the mirror. But um, it took us many years to reconcile our relationship just because I chose to judge her story and not believe it just to protect myself. And it wasn't like I was ever trying to prove her wrong. I was actually trying to prove myself right. And that judgment actually forced a chasm between us and it made it very difficult for us to connect with each other in a mother-daughter way. We, we, we became friends, but I, it was very, very strained, very tenuous. And she lived in America, so I'd only see her once a year when I was traveling through there. We'd speak, you know, not very often. The relationship kind of ebbed and flowed. So our relationship was often quite tenuous. We were, you know, we'd come together and then we'd go, we'd separate and then we'd come back together and separate. And because she was living so far away, uh, it just gave me an, an easy excuse to not have to make that effort. And then three years ago, she rang me in March uh, and she said, um, they've given me three weeks to live. I've got ovarian cancer. Can you come and say goodbye? So the next day I jumped on a plane and I flew to America and I had a couple of days next to her on her bedside and um, and she was so frail and, and yeah, almost well and truly gone. But I was very fortunate that I had that opportunity to sit there and, and say thank you and, and we basically forgave each other and apologized to each other and told each other we loved each other and then she fell asleep and never woke up again. So mm. I'm very fortunate that I had that closure, that I had that opportunity to settle our differences and, um, and you know, she'll always be my mum and I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to connect with her because I know a lot of optees desperately want that opportunity and never really granted that. For the movie script that might come someday, I, I so want her to be a beautiful <laughs> lady. She was, yeah, definitely. Feisty character. Oh, well, I couldn't have seen her passing on your exactly. bloodlines. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have seen her any other way. <laughs> Lane, these days you are heading up the Awake Academy. What is the Awake Academy and what do you strive for? The whole purpose behind Awake Academy is to cultivate connection, growth and happiness in humanity. We literally offer no bullshit transformation. It's an online self-empowerment portal to help people wake up and trust in love and detach from fear. So at the moment, we're all going through a pretty challenging period and we're all just stuck in all sorts of fear-based negativity and uncertainty and and there's a whole lot of um, pain that people are in. So Awake Academy, the objective is to shortcut the struggle and, and help people detach from fear and bring back a bit of fun and find their flow. It's about designing a life you love. So I've designed a course called Own Your Truth and it's a seven-round online self-paced course to help people wake up. It's all basically my life lessons distilled into this course. So it's uh, seven rounds to go with seven more titles. It's got 19 videos to watch. I happen to be on tour for 19 years and there's 29 workbook activities and I actually won 29 events. Now that happened organically. I didn't (laughs) manufacture that, but I'm very grateful that that's how it worked out. If someone like a big mug like me comes along and says, hey, I'd love to partake in the Awake Academy, how will, uh, if I was a successful product through the other end, what would it do for me? 
Well, it'll make you feel more centred, connected and confident. And we all need a little bit of that right now. Oh, yeah. And happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Lane, it has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure speaking to you, as it always is. I've been been fortunate enough over the years to occasionally uh, bump into you, and you're never more than gracious and uh, so generous with your time. I thank you very, very much for chatting to us. Thank you, Dermo. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I wish you continued happiness and good health and success in all your endeavours. And I look forward to sharing a wave with you sometime soon. If you want to find out more of what Lane is up to and what she's offering and you want to participate, get into it. Awakeacademy.com.au and that will connect you through to Lane Beachley. If our conversation today has raised any issues for you and you'd like to get some support, you can call Beyond Blue 1300 226636 or Lifeline 13 11 14. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Conversations That Could for Are You OK and you'd like to share it with a friend or access the resources in our show notes, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Listener.